This morning I want us to begin a series that's going to take us all the way up to Easter. Off and on, I'll mention to you uh, what I've called mental bookmarks. There are a few of those mental bookmarks that you want to have, and one of them that I refer to often is John chapters 13 through 17. All of those chapters in John, 13 all the way through 17, all of those chapters are one conversation. All of those take place one night in one room with 13 people. John chapter 13 through 17 include the conversation that Jesus had with his disciples just before he died. You might say that John 13 through 17 include Jesus' last will and testament. What is a last will and testament? It's a document in which you make sure that the people you care about know what you want done with your stuff. And within that document, there are ways in which you can leave your final wishes and your final words to those you care about. John 13 through 17 is Jesus' last will and testament. He's saying to them, guys, I'm not going to be with you any longer, but here's what I want you to do. In some ways, they were his final words. We know he spoke from the cross, but these were the last words that he spoke directly to his disciples in giving them instruction. Guys, I'm on my way out. Here's what you need to know. Here's what I want you to do. Here's who I want you to be. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to look at that that conversation that took place in what we now call the upper room. We begin this morning in in the 13th chapter, and each week we'll move forward through the text until we get to Easter Sunday morning. As we begin this morning in John chapter 13, I want to ask you first of all to close your eyes real quick. I want you to bring to mind a picture of Jesus. When you call to mind a picture of Jesus, how do you see him? You can open your eyes. Was your picture one of Jesus in shining robes of royalty sitting on his throne at the right hand of the Father? Is that how you pictured him? Or when I ask you to picture Jesus, did, did you picture him sitting on a great stallion arriving to conquer his enemies? When you pictured Jesus, did you picture him more like a, a carpenter, a simple brown tunic of a common man, maybe walking along the, the beach or sitting down to have dinner with sinners? Or did you, perhaps, 
Picture Jesus in the crude underclothes, the undergarment of a slave, kneeling to wash the dirty feet of other people. Chances are when we think about Jesus, that's the last image that comes to mind. And yet that was the image that he wanted to leave with his disciples more than any other. In John chapter 13, let's start at verse 1. Before the feast of the Passover. Now you know what has already happened. He has entered into Jerusalem. Big parade, big palm palm leaves, the whole thing. He arrives and he tells his disciples, go and, and find this upper room because it's time for the Passover. By the way, that's why everybody was in Jerusalem when Jesus died. They didn't all show up from all over the place to see people die. They showed up from all over the place because it was Passover. And what do you do at Passover? You go to Jerusalem if you can make it. So there were people all over Jerusalem for Passover. That's why Jesus and his disciples had come to town. And so he said, go and get this room ready for us. And so in verse 1, it says, before the feast of Passover, before the whole reason they came to town, before that meal started, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Notice it says that he knew that his hour had come, and that is especially pertinent and especially important for the Gospel of John. Because it is in John that we see early in the Gospel where he says, my hour has not yet come. A few chapters later we hear him say, my hour has not yet come. And through the Gospel of John, we get this sense that he is headed somewhere. We know that he's headed to the cross, but he's he's not there yet because the timing's not right. My hour has not yet come. But now, in chapter 13, verse 1, now it says he knew that the hour for his departure had come. You and I realize the gruesome nature of his death. We recognize that he was was tortured before he ever arrived at the cross. And the Bible says that you could not recognize him. He was beaten so badly you could not recognize him before he ever got to the cross. And then once on the cross, they nailed him to the cross, lifted him with that crown of thorns. And we know that he basically suffocated to death. And yet, how is that death described? Look, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. You and I who are believers, that gives us great hope because it says however we leave this world, we understand that death for the Christian, like death for Jesus, is actually a departure out of this world into the presence of the Father. And we find great hope. So there's no wonder that John worded it the way he did. Jesus knew that the hour had come for his departure out of this world to the Father. Now knowing this, he spent the last hours with his disciples 
giving his last will and testament. He knew that he was about to die, and so he gathers them around. He says, guys, this is what you must know. And so we find our Jesus starting his night with those disciples, washing their feet. You see verse 2, during supper when when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, all that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, laid aside his garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Jesus, knowing that he had everything in his hands, in other words, that God had had bestowed on him the power and the authority of all of creation, suggesting to us that he did not have to endure what he endured. He could have taken matters into his own hands. He could have called down those 10,000 angels. He had all the power and the authority in his own hands, and yet He also knew that he had come from God and was going back to God. He knew exactly who he was. He knew exactly what was happening. He knew that he had the power of Almighty God. And yet, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. And here is Almighty God, the Creator, the all-powerful Lord of Lords, King of Kings, washing feet. That's how we begin the 13th chapter, how we begin the night in the upper room. What would be the first thing that you would say to your family if you knew tomorrow was your day to depart out of this world and to go to the Father? It's tomorrow, so today is your last day. What would you say? You get all of your family together. You get many of your friends together, and you say, guys, this is it. My time has come, and here's what I want you to know for the rest of your life. What do you say? What do you do? Jesus picked up a towel to wash their dirty feet. There must be something awful powerful about washing feet. As we look at his experience that night, I want you to notice a few things because that's going to inform how we live our lives First, I want you to notice his motivation. Why would the great one, the the awesome Lord, why would he take off that outer garment and in what would amount to his underwear, kneel at the feet of, of fishermen, of dirty people, of a tax collector, of someone that Jesus knew was about to betray him. 
what would cause a man to do that? What would cause the Lord of the universe to do that? Did you hear it? Jesus, knowing that Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from the Father and was going back to the Father, rose from supper, laid aside his garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist so he could wash their feet. Why? Because in verse 1, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He humbled himself before them. He laid down his cloak. He had done that before, by the way. He had one other time taken off an outer garment. Philippians 2 describes it for us as he, as he took off the, the garment of glory. He took off his royal robes and instead he put on humanity. Now he once again humbles himself and he takes off the outer garment. Why? Because he loved them to the end. That's a powerful statement because he didn't love them as long as they followed him. He didn't love them as long as they got it right. He came because he loved them and he loved them to the end. Understand, you are one messed up person. How do I know that? Because you're a person. Understand as well, God knows that you are one messed up person. But understand more completely that even though you are messed up and even though God knows you're messed up, He loves you and He will love you to the end. Jesus proved it. In this case, for this point, it doesn't really matter what you feel. The reality, the truth, was demonstrated by Jesus the night that he spent that last few moments with his disciples. It was proven that he loved his disciples to the end. And if that were ever in question, look at what happened just a few hours later when he died on that cross. The scripture makes it clear that it was love that held him there. He loves you as you are that much. But not only does that inspire us with his love for us, but it also reminds us that he is, he is calling us to that kind of love of others. What is it that motivated him to serve them that night? His love. If, there's some, if, there, if, if you look in your life and you see a lack of servanthood, you see that it doesn't, it doesn't happen naturally and it doesn't happen joyfully for you to serve other people, then the issue is not whether or not you serve, the issue is whether or not you love. Because when love is your motivation, you serve. His motivation was that he loved them 
to the end. But then I also want you to pay attention to his example. Picking up again in verse 4, he rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that he was that that was wrapped around him. He not only loves them, but he shows them an example. This act of washing their feet, well, this was not just some kind of ceremonial thing. For us, when we wash feet today, it's a, it's a symbolic thing. It's a ceremonial thing. But for Jesus, this was, this was not ceremonial. This was custom of necessity. This is what was done when you come to my house. I show you respect and I make sure that dinner's going to be nice for both of us by making sure that I have someone there to wash your feet. You, in order to get to my house, you had to walk probably a long way and you had to walk through dirt. If you had anything on your feet, they were just sandals and so your feet are dirty. And we're about to recline at the table. By the way, the table was not one like you and I have. It was down very low to the ground if there was a table at all. It would have been very low to the ground. And so they would have reclined. They would have laid on their side to eat, which means that somebody's feet is going to be close to my nose when I'm trying to eat my roast beef and I don't want to be smelling your feet. So the way you fix that is there's a servant who washes the people's feet as they arrive. Now here's the problem that I have with that whole scenario. How many people in that room, we, we may not know for sure, but we know at least the, the, the least number of possible people. How many people in the room? 13, right? 12 disciples, Jesus. At least 13. May have been some some other people hanging on. That's fine. We don't know. But my point is this. At least 13 people in the room. One of them is rabbi, master. One of them is teacher. All of the people there follow this one dude. Who is the last person who should have been washing feet? Every one of the followers should have gotten in line to wash the feet of their master, of their teacher, of their rabbi. But you see, their minds were elsewhere. Just a little while ago, James and John had been fighting and arguing over who's going to get the better throne, who's going to be the biggest wig in the kingdom. Their minds are elsewhere. And so Jesus shows them an example. He says, guys, this is the way you follow me. Pride kept the others from doing what needed to be done. They were thinking about thrones. They should have been thinking about the basin and the towel. They were thinking about competition. They should have been thinking about compassion. And so Jesus rises. He notice he doesn't say anything. He doesn't say, you no good, sorry. He just rises, takes off his outer garment, 
with kind of his t-shirt on, wraps the towel around him. It is a silent rebuke. He's saying to them, guys, why aren't you doing this? I want you to see me doing this because I want you to learn from my example. He had already taught them his ways. In Matthew chapter 20, Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man, look, did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. He had already taught them. Guys, if you want to be great, the way to be great is to serve. And yet here they are in the last minutes that they have with him arguing over who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. And so he reminds them the way to be great is to pick up a towel. True greatness is the ability to take our eyes off of ourselves and to see the needs of others. The measure of a man's greatness is not the number of people who serve him, but the number of people he serves. And so he gave them an example so they could see what this is supposed to look like. But then I hope that you'll also notice before we're done today, notice his purpose, his why, if you will. We pick up the story. We're going to fast forward now and pick up the story around verse 13. You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. You see, the purpose in washing their feet was to give them this example, was to teach them what to do, and then to tell them, now you guys take over. His purpose was to make sure that they began to serve one another. Selfish pride had divided them. Anger and competition weakened them as a group. Have you ever experienced that in a a workplace or a church or a family? That selfish pride can divide us? that anger and competition weakens us. Jesus was counting on these 12. He's counting on these 12. He knows about the one, so technically he's counting on 11 guys to carry on his ministry and to change the entire world. And it is vitally important that they stay together and that they keep focused on what's important. So he's saying to them, stop picking at each other. Stop dividing yourselves. Church, stop dividing yourselves over stuff that's not that important. Stop letting pride 
put your preferences above the needs of others. And he says to them, you guys stay together, and the way you stay together is serving one another. You see the logic of his teaching? In verse 13, he says, I am the Lord, the teacher. You got that right. So as the teacher then, in verse 14 and 15, as the teacher, as the master, you should be following my example. Very logical, very clear. The purpose of giving this example was as I have done to you. You should do these things just as I have done to you. He wanted them to begin to serve. Folks, if you are saved, if you're a believer, you were not saved to sit. You were saved to serve. We need to humble ourselves following his example. Even if that means that sometimes we have to say, I was wrong. I'm sorry. Philippians chapter 2 is that text that I already mentioned to you and will not take time now. But write that address down, Philippians 2, 1 through 8. Because it says, have this mind among you. In other words, think like this. Think like Jesus thought. When he gave up his throne, he gave up glory and became a man, but not only a man, but he became a man who died. He didn't only die, but he died on the cross. He went from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows out of humility. Have this mind, that mind among you. The master's purpose was to teach them to humbly serve. And then notice his blessing and we're done. Verse 16, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. He said, I've given you an example. I've told you what to do. You're not better than the master. I'm the teacher, and yet I have served. Don't think you're better than I am. Now you serve one another the way I taught you, the way I just showed you, and blessed are you if you do them. To experience real Christian joy, we start with knowledge and we add obedience. It's easy to say, I agree with that. It's hard to live it out. So he didn't say, blessed are you if you agree with me. He said, blessed are you if you do these things. The best way for you to serve the Lord Jesus Christ is to serve the people around you. Because when we serve the people around us, we are saying to Jesus, I got it. I understand. I will be obedient and I'll be like you. I heard your message, Jesus, in the last will and testament and I'm going to carry out your final wishes. I'll be a servant. 